Okay, this is Mark chapter 7, verse 23 verses, and I'll read God's word to us this morning. And when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, they were unwashed. <clears throat> For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pot, uh, pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Notice that's in the uh, parentheses, and you'll see another parentheses a little bit further down. The reason that is is because Mark is writing to a primarily uh, Gentile or Roman audience who didn't really understand the traditions of the Jews, and particularly of the Pharisees and the scribes. So that's why he's putting in the parentheses to kind of give us some commentary and help us understand. Verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you, sh whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can make him unclean or defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all things clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Well, there's an old Greek maxim. You've probably heard it, to know thyself. You ever heard that before? To know thyself. And one of the ways that we can know ourselves is kind of looking back over our family history or looking at the traits of your parents. Any of you inherit tra traits from your parents? <laughs> sometimes they're great, aren't they? But sometimes they're not so good. You know, I've joked with Walt, sorry not to pick on Walt, but we both joked about how our dads love to do coffee. And they just, we know they have my dad, the way he does coffee. I'm inheriting the, the way my dad drinks coffee is the way I drink coffee. You know, it's the... You know, it's so loud, it's so annoying, and it even annoys me, you know. I mean, we have these traits that we inherited from our parents, and one of the ways that we know ourselves is by looking kind of at our family histories, right? But, but ultimately, in looking at our family histories, we still can't ultimately know ourselves. We have a run-in here this morning with Jesus and the Pharisees once again. We've seen that several times as we've gotten this far in chapter 7 in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus, when he runs into the Pharisees, he always has some pretty strong words for them. And, you know, coming true here, the same thing. He runs into the Pharisees, and he has some very strong words for them. And, and really, Mark uncovers for us 
this morning the tragedy of the truth that the Pharisees really didn't know themselves. And so that's what Mark is showing us this morning, is that he is exposing the truth that the Pharisees, these guys didn't really know their hearts, know themselves. And in doing so, he's really exposing the truth that we really don't know ourselves either. He's taking us down to a level that's painful as he's exposing us. So he begins this story this morning of, of the Pharisees who've caught Jesus and his disciples red-handed. Jesus and his disciples have been in the market, likely purchasing food or just walking through the market. And any good Jew worth his salt, if you're in a public place like that, particularly a market, you know, marketplaces are kind of dirty and people are selling their unwashed vegetables and all that. And the fact that you're in a market and you, you haven't even touched anything would make you in Jewish religion and standards unclean. So here we have Jesus and his disciples getting ready to eat, and they haven't washed their hands, right? Ceremonially, they haven't washed their hands to make themselves outside pure. And so Mark is explaining to us that this was a huge deal for the Jewish folk, and particularly huge deal for the Pharisees. Because remember, Mark is reminding, uh, writing to a primary Gentile and Roman bunch, and that's why he's given us kind of this commentary. Now we, right, we wash our meals before we eat most of the time, right? I have little boys. We have to always tell them, wash your hands before you eat, guys. I mean, it took me till I was probably in college before I remembered to do that. Ooh, I know. But it's true. Boys just, that's the way boys are. But you know, you, we, we normally wash our hands, right, before we eat. And we do that for sanitary re- reasons, for health reasons. But for the Pharisees, it wasn't so much about health reasons. It was really more about keeping the traditions of their fathers, the elders, and ceremonially washing their hands so that outside they were pure and they could be in the presence of God. This, this was the Pharisees and their religious traditions, if you will. And, and in order to keep those traditions, if you kept those traditions, not just God's Old Testament law, but all these extra biblical laws and rules and traditions that they had come up with, even to couch God's law, if you didn't do those things, you weren't morally pure. Your, your moral holiness wasn't intact. And so they even kept adding more rules and traditions in order to keep protecting themselves from the moral filth and holiness around them and and shield themselves from the filth, if you will, of the outside world. And so here we have Jesus, who was undoubtedly the most popular rabbi of the day, far more than we know, he was far more than that, but to them, he was the most popular rabbi of the day. You know, the buzz around all of the cities and towns and villages and communities was Jesus, this great miracle worker, this great teacher, And here we have Jesus and his disciples, the greatest rabbi of all time in their eyes, not washing his hands. His disciples, who he's leading, not washing their hands. Huge deal for them. Huge deal. And you know, the Pharisees, Mark tells us that it was such a big deal to them to be ceremonially pure on the outside. They wouldn't just wash their hands. Mark tells us what? They washed their pots and their plates and their knives and their forks. They even washed the couch that they're going to be sitting on to eat. That's pretty, pretty extreme. And so Mark gives us this interesting contrast here, and it's very purposeful, I think, the reason he does this. One of the things he shows us is how complicated these religious guys, these religious teachers, these Pharisees, how complicated their life was. Can you imagine that? Before you ate, you'd have to wash your couch. (laughs) I want to eat. When I want to eat, I don't want to have to wash my chair. And then, I mean, these guys' lives were complicated, and that was just the tip of the iceberg for these guys. They, They had a complicated life compared to the lives of Jesus and his disciples. You know, the Pharisees would have to keep up with ritual after a ritual to somehow assure themselves that they were in good status with God and with others. Yet, 
Mark compares Jesus and his disciples this almost childlike way that Jesus and his disciples carried themselves. And so Mark gives us this distinction to get at the very heart of the differences between Jesus and the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees viewed God as this distant lawmaker who demands that his holy laws be obeyed at all costs or else. And yet Jesus, as we see in the Gospel of Mark and in the other Gospels, he's revealing that God was a father to those who simply trusted him. That God has designed us to live in this open fellowship, in this open relationship with him. And yet God's laws are not null and void, but they are still in, in order and in intact, and they are given to us as a father gives his children wisdom to protect us, to grow us in our love and our trust and our obedience to God. You know, as I was studying this this past week, I, I, I made me, it made me realize that, do you know that the Pharisees, they get a bad rap, uh, and rightly, they were the ones who trapped Jesus and were constantly trying to kill Jesus. But you've got to understand this. The Pharisees really did care about the glory and the holiness of God. So much so that they, they added all these extra rules to the Old Testament in order to show somehow externally that God was holy and God should be glorified. So in some measure, they did care about God's holiness and his glory. And I think even in some measure, they did care about Jesus and his disciples. They were in some ways trying to correct Jesus and his disciples because they hadn't ritually washed their hands. Now, this ritual washing and religious rules that they were doing back then probably seemed foreign to us, right? We don't do these kind of outward things to make ourselves right and live in ritual ways, do we? Well, actually, I think we do. Think about it like this. We do the same thing, right? Say you're going out on a blind date. You're going to have some rituals you're going to do, right? You're going to brush your teeth. You're going to floss your teeth. You're going to probably use two or three different kinds of mouthwashes. You're going to be you know, spraying up the body spray. and You know, you're going to do everything you can, right? You got rituals. You got cleanliness rituals because when you're going out on a blind date, you want to look good. You want to smell good. And when you talk to them, you don't want to kill them with your garlic breath, right? So we have rituals that we do, right? Uh, you're going to meet the president of the United States, regardless of what you think of his policies. We're not going to go there. But the president, hey, I would like to meet Obama. That's pretty cool to, be, to, be, to, meet, to meet the president. You're going to meet the president of the United States. You're not going to show up in a shirt untucked and tattered jeans and bad breath. You're going to wear a nice suit. You're going to go spend some money and get your hair cut. And you're going to go through some rituals, right, in order to meet the president. You know, you're interviewing for a job, and you go in front of the company executives, the bigwigs who have pull and who have authority over this company, and you're not going to show up with brownie in your teeth, and, you know, uh, you're not going to do it with coffee stain on your, big, your shirt. You don't do that. You have rituals. We have cleanliness rituals that we go through, right? Same kind of thing here. The Pharisees had these cleanliness laws, these cleanliness rituals that they went through to present themselves right before God. So Jesus didn't disagree with him about being clean before the Lord. He didn't. He agreed with him on that. But he hugely, get this, he hugely disagreed with them about the source of their uncleanliness. That's what we're going to see here this morning. He hugely disagreed with them about the source of their uncleanliness. So we're going to see two things this morning. First, the outside-in approach to cleanliness. And then the inside-out approach cleanliness. So Jesus clarifies some things for the Pharisees and for us this morning about this outside-in approach. The Pharisees had this misdirected zeal, this misguided zeal and understanding about God and His holiness, right? To them, it was all about this outside-in. I've got to keep it together. 
on the outside and then everything else is good on the inside. And Jesus is saying, you are right. Yes, you are right in believing that God is holy. You are right in believing that He is just. You are right in believing that He is to be glorified. But your understanding of His holiness and your understanding of the source of your uncleanness is fatally skewed. Here's what makes you really unclean. He says, you believe in order to to, uh, to uh, be good on the outside, that you obey these traditions of men and you obey these rules and you're hopeful that in obeying these traditions and rules that somehow that will trickle in on the inside and perhaps bend God's heart or bend your lifestyle so that God would somehow uh, accept you. And then Jesus takes him to the Old Testament. I love how he does this. He quotes the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament. The Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. And he quotes the Pharisees' scriptures to them in Isaiah. And he says, listen, I'm going to drop something on you guys, and you're, you're going to be blown away. And so he drops Isaiah 29, 13. And he was giving them the truth that they desperately needed to hear. And so this is what he says. He says, listen, hear what Isaiah has to say to you guys. Well did Isaiah prophesy you of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people, Pharisees, you honor me with your lips but your heart is far from me. In vain do you worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus calls these guys publicly in front of everybody, hypocrites. Whew, that was huge. And here's what he says. He says three things here as he quotes this passage from Isaiah. He says, first of all, you are hypocrites. This is interesting. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word where they would use, the Greeks would use the word hypocrite, not in a bad sense. Actually, the word hypocrite in the Greek, describes someone who is an actor in a play. Isn't that interesting? You know, back then, in order for you to become a, a character of somebody else, you didn't have makeup and all the fancy dresses, you know, and, and the prop rooms that you have, I'm sure, on Broadway or that kind of place you have, like we have today. Back then, you didn't have that. They didn't use makeup. They used masks because masks were a lot easier. And so these actors, these hypocrites, actors, would hold masks up to their face and the real personality of the actor, right, was hidden behind the mask. And Jesus is saying, you guys are actors. You're holding masks up. You're hypocrites. You say, your lips speak of one thing, your outside life. But your inside life, your heart, speak of another thing. They play acted this public role of being devoted to God, yet their attitudes, their words, and their actions betrayed truth that they really didn't know God at all. That's a pretty stinging accusation, isn't it? Sounds like me in a lot of ways. I think truthfully it sounds like all of us sitting in this room. All of us are hypocrites, mask holders at some level, aren't we? But Jesus doesn't, you know, I love how he always takes it down. He drills deep. You know, he doesn't just go in a couple of inches, man. He's pulling out the giant big rig and drilling deep. And he goes on to the second thing. He says, not only are you hypocrites, but he says your hearts are distanced from God, he says from Isaiah. Jesus exposes this reality to them that their hearts weren't set on God, but as hypocrites, their hearts were set on themselves. You know, there's a big way that I see this in my own life, how my heart, Stephen's heart, is set on himself. I think God has given, I know he has. He has given me the gift of pressing and he has given me the gift of marriage. And he's really given you all the gift of marriage. He's given us the gift of marriage. Because, you know, I thought I was self, selfish before I got married. <laughs> and then when I got married, holy cow. Now I was selfish with a little S. 
But when I got married, it was got capital, bold, underlined, italicized, as selfish. That's what marriage has helped me see, that being in a relationship and marriage has helped me to see that, you know, and, and I think as a parent, if you're a parent in this room or you're a child in this room, which you're either a parent or a child or both in this room, does the same thing. Let me see if we can play that out. How about marriage? How does marriage kind of expose how my heart can be distanced from God? You know, often as a male, as a man, I, I don't always pay attention to my wife like I should. Husband, you ever been guilty of that? We don't always pay attention to our spouses as we should, and we begin to isolate. Men, we're really good at isolating, aren't we? Of withdrawing from our duties, withdrawing from our spouses, withdrawing from things, and we tend to isolate. We go to our man cave, and we hold up, right? And we isolate, and we tune out for hours. And, you know, and we do it in all different kinds of ways. Some ways aren't bad, and some ways are not. But they're bad in very sinful ways. But we isolate for a selfish time of pleasure. We withdraw on ourselves when our me time becomes me, 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 me time. You see the difference? Me time is fine. It's good, okay to have me time. But me, 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 me time is not good. And men, we do that. We go to me, 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 me time. And it can be good things, good traditions of men that we use for me, 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 me time, and bad, bad things, bad traditions of men for me, 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 me time. Right? And I'm no longer bringing my heart close to Presley Ann, but I'm distancing my heart from my wife. And she feels that. She knows that. It's inherent within women. They have this heart radar. They do, don't they? Men, come on, nod your head. It's true. Our wives have this radar. And they know when something's up. <laughs> and we're distancing ourselves, and they're like, honey, are you okay? You do, oh, I'm fine. You're doing great. Me, 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 you know? And not only do we distance ourselves when we want me, me, me time, then we try to exercise some of these good traditions of men, right? And we go to our spouses without intimacy or heartfelt love, and we go and we get her flowers, and we unload the dishwasher, and we're nice to her, but in the inside, we want me, 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 don't we? It's true. And she picks up on that. She knows. She sees right through that. And she knows that I'm still hiding out in my own selfishness. What about parents? Parents, you, you do this, don't you? You pick up on this. When your kids are doing that me, 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 where they're withdrawing right, you know as a good mom or dad that something is going on, don't you? You know. You know something's up. And what do they do? They try to counter that just like the husband does. The child tries to counter that with, oh, well, let me unload the dishwasher for you, Mom. You know? Let me take out the trash for you. Oh, sure, I'll get off the video games, Mom. Sure, no problem. We try to serve our folks, and you go out of your way to be sweet, but on the inside, you're clinging to the me, 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 selfishness and sin. We all do this, don't we? The point is, is that we try to compensate loving ourselves with the outward affections and duties of those around us. We try to compensate. Okay, if I can just, I can have me, 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 and I'll compensate by just trying to do a few good things. I'm good. I'm not struggling. You all right? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Me, 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 me. But in reality, what are we doing? We're wearing our masks, and we're living this lie of the outside-in life. And then Jesus takes it even deeper. He says, not only are you a hypocrite, not only is your heart distanced from God, but you are placing tradition to the Pharisees. You are placing tradition above Scripture. And he quotes Isaiah, speaking to the Pharisees in their language of heart. Because Isaiah, when Jesus quoted this, Isaiah in his day was accusing people of so clinging to man-made traditions that for all practical purposes, God's word was made subservient to man's rules and word. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, listen, guys, 
you see that external rules and traditions are important and they have taken place of the inward spiritual grace that I'm trying to show you in the person of myself, Jesus, and even in the Old Testament. You see, to them, holiness was judged by what could be seen, right? Pharisees measured holiness by what could be seen. Worthiness was, was judged by what could be seen. Uh, someone who would be worthy of my love or my attention would, ju- would be judged by how they are doing morally outside. And so they would not only love themselves, but they really wouldn't love other people very well. And we do that right with the me, 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 me. We really love ourselves. And we do just enough to show a little bit of love to the other person. We don't really exercise great love to them, right? Because we're all about me, 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 me. You see, the Pharisees were judging holiness by outside and externals. And it totally screwed up God's design for relationship and intimacy and holiness and love. But we know, and Jesus is showing us, that God doesn't measure holiness outside in. He measures holiness by what's inside of your heart. You see, the Pharisees had tried to replace God's love with God's law. But we know that you can't do that, right? Because God's love is the fulfillment of the law, Jesus tells us. No, they couldn't replace God's love with law, but they could replace God's love with self-love. And they could replace God's law with man's tradition. That's exactly what they did. And you know what? This, this is not new. What Jesus is saying here to these guys, what he's saying to you this morning and me this morning is not new. This reeks of Adam and Eve. If you go back to, to Genesis, what did Adam and Eve have? God created Adam and Eve, gave them this perfect world, created perfect relational intimacy with him and with each other. There was a marriage before sin entered the picture where there was no jealousy, there was no bitterness, there was no anger, there was no disappointment, there was no grief. None of that was there. None of it. Relationship with God, no sin that was prohibiting me to be in intimacy with God. None of that was there. And plus they were in this perfect creation, perfect world, given everything. And yet what does Satan, the serpent, do? He comes to Adam and Eve and says, hey, this garden is great, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. This is a great place to be. God's good, isn't he? He's a good God. Oh yeah, he is. He's really taken. Hey, your wife, she's beautiful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Eve. Ooh. Your husband, Adam, he's a good-looking dude. Oh, yeah. Mm, he's a good, good one. He's a good one. Yeah. But you know what? He's holding out one thing on me. You got everything. You got each other, right? You got God. It's all good. This world you're in, it's good. But he's holding out on you. There's one thing he's holding out on you. He hasn't given you the right to be him. You got everything else. He hasn't given you the right to be him. He's holding out on you. Pharisees are just repeating the same evil, broken pattern that started with the fall of man all those years. They're just putting a more acceptable skin on it called religion. But inside, the same poison. God is holding out on me. I've got to do something about this mess, this this brokenness. See, the Pharisees had this great orthodox theology to be morally pure, but they were blind to their own real needs because of the sin that was inside of them, their heart problem. And so this outside-in approach, there was a curse to this outside-in approach. You know, why was this such a big deal to Jesus? Why was Jesus giving these guys such a hard time? Just like any good preacher, as Emerald says, you got to take it up a notch, right? you got to illustrate this. Jesus gives them this illustration. He says, let me show you why this is a curse and this is a problem. And he gives them this illustration about one of their own traditions. 
he gives him this scenario. Look at verse 10. He says, all right, guys, listen. Let me illustrate this for you. Take Moses and God's Old Testament law. Do you like God's Old Testament law? Oh, yeah. Pharisees are like, yes, we're, we're on board with God's Old Testament law. Why do you think we have all these extra rules to help us not break it? Okay. Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever scorns his father or mother must surely die. Do you agree with that? Oh, yes. On board with that. Yes. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you gain from me is Corbin, I'll explain this in a minute, that is dedicated or given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, take care of them, thus making him void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do so many things like that. See, back then, if someone wanted to devote their uh, wealth or something to God in his uh, temple synagogue, they would contact the priests of the synagogue and they would take, you know, say it was your inheritance. And you, being a good Jewish person who wanted to be right with God, you wanted to dedicate your inheritance to the God and to the temple. And so you would literally write over your inheritance to be owned by God in the temple. And so Jesus sets up this scenario and says, okay, here's this guy who's inherited uh, uh, an inheritance from his mom and dad, and, and it's right, and it was good, and yet he didn't want to come back and use some of that inheritance to help take care of his parents, so he devotes it. Corbin, that word Corbin literally means to be set apart for God. So this guy would Corbin, he would take his inheritance and give it, set it apart for God, and, and now the synagogue would own this guy's inheritance. So Jesus quotes the Old Testament and says, listen, you guys take obeying your parents seriously, right? But say this guy, I'm going to set up the scenario, say this guy wants to, and not only do you take uh, obeying parents seriously and honoring parents seriously, you take it so seriously that if, say, someone were to, to divorce himself from his parents and no longer serve or care for them or love them, it could possibly mean the death penalty for this guy. And they're like, yeah, that's right. But Jesus says, okay, this guy takes his inheritance, he he comes to the synagogue and he wants to do Corbin to dedicate it to God and he gives the money to the temple. And then the parents come to the temple and say, listen, my son has given all of my inheritance that I gave to him to you and we have nothing to live on. Can you please release some of those funds to help us? And the Pharisees would say, no, because it's Corbin. It's dedicated to God. You can't have any of it. You see what they're doing? He's saying, listen, you don't take God's law and, it, and your rule, tradition, Corbin. Corbin doesn't trump honoring your parents. You can't do that, Jesus says. I can almost picture Jesus raising his voice in righteous anger here, saying, listen, because of your rules, because of your traditions, this man can no longer care for his parents, and you're making void God's word to honor and care for your parents by putting your foolish traditions above God's word, and you do this all the time. So curse you, Jesus says. So this curse of the outside-in approach plays out like this. They were minimizing God's holiness. They were minimizing God's power and his authority, and they were maximizing their importance before God and before men. And they were, in essence, if you will, giving God the finger. That's what they were doing. And they were also driving people away from God in his word. And nothing got under Jesus' skin more than that. You remember when he says in the Gospels, if you were to cause a little child to fall away from the Lord, better is it for you to hang a millstone around your neck, which was a big thousand pound stone they used for grinding wheat, 
better it is for you to hang that millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean because your eternal life, your future is damned. So Mark tells us emphatically that Jesus frustrated. He wants his hearers to focus on the truth that outside in doesn't work. So what does he do? Verse 14, Jesus calls the people around him. He says, listen, guys, huddle up. And he pulls his disciples in. He pulls the other people in, and he says, listen, holiness is not a matter of externals outside in. Holiness is a matter of the heart inside out because what comes out of our heart makes us unclean, not what comes in. And this leads to our second point, the blessings of an inside-out life. Jesus uses graphic language here, and he gives us this parable. He says, listen, there is nothing outside a person, verse 15, coming into him that makes him unclean or defiles him. But the things that come out of a person defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples, I love this, disciples were like, Jesus, we didn't quite understand that. Could you explain that? (laughs) You guys don't get it. Verse 18, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever comes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and then is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. I'll explain that in a minute. Jesus is saying, whatever you eat, whether it's clean or unclean, if it's pork or vegetables, whether you've touched that clean food with unclean fans, uh, hands, none of that matters. Whatever comes into your mouth goes down into your stomach, then out into the toilet, is what Jesus is saying. It never gets to your heart, right? Anything that comes in from the outside of you doesn't get into your heart. Nothing that comes in from the outside, Jesus is saying, makes us spiritually unclean. Then he goes on to explain what comes out of a person. Verse 20 is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. That pretty much sums it up. So you see what Jesus is saying here? You know what's really wrong with the world? Do you know why there is murder and strife, why there is broken relationships in the world we live in, why there were 13-year-old girls sold into prostitution at this year's Super Bowl? Do you know the problem with that? What causes that? You cause that. The problem is in you. We are what's wrong, Jesus says. It comes not from the outside, but from the inside, the self-centeredness of the human heart. And Jesus says that these evils come from the heart And he says they make us so unclean that he tells his disciples later in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Let me just read this. He says, what comes from within your heart makes you so unclean that you need to do radical surgery. He says this, if your hand causes you to sin, Jesus says, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter into life crippled than to go go without hands, with two hands into hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, he says, cut it off, for it's better to you to enter life uh, lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, for it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Jesus says, hand and foot, referring to sinful behavior. Your hand or your foot causes you to sin, he's referring to sinful behavior. Your eye causes you to sin, he's talking about sinful desires. So he's saying, listen, Your sinful behaviors, your sinful desires are like fire that has broken out on your living room couch. And you're sitting on one end of the couch and you look down at the other end of the couch and the pillow's on fire and you're going, listen, that's no big deal. It's just the cushion burning. My house isn't burning. But if you don't do something about that cushion, guess what? You're gonna burn. (laughs) 
your house is going to burn if you don't do something with that cushion, right? Why is that? Because fire is never satisfied. Fire is never satisfied. Fire will burn as long as there's fuel and oxygen. You cannot allow the flames to smolder because it will eventually reignite and overtake you. Jesus is saying sin is the same way. It never stays in place, but it will consume you and lead to separation now in your life on this earth, and it will lead to separation for an eternity in life in the next. And folks, every single one of us in here are eternal people. This, what you see, your 40, 50, 60, 70, 100 years here on earth is not it. This is just the preamble to the reality of an eternal future, he says. That's why he gives us this dramatic image of amputation. No compromises. Your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If it's your eye, cut it out. But then we see that our foot, or my, my foot, my foot, my foot, my foot, my hand, my eye, is not the biggest problem, he says. Your heart is the biggest problem. And I can't cut my heart out right, Jesus. You see, no matter what we do, the external solutions will never go deep enough to deal with our sins. No matter what external solutions you try to put in place to deal with the mess inside, it will never, ever go deep enough. Outside in never works. Jesus is saying clearly, our problem is on the inside and it needs to work from the inside out. You know, I can try, try, try to surround myself with good people. And that's a good thing. You know, it's good to have good friends and good people speaking into your life. I can try to have good people in my life. You know, I can try uh, to um, stay away from bad websites and bad media that doesn't feed my soul, right? I can try to read my Bible daily and pray. All good things, right? All good things. I can really try to be good and in reality become a pretty decent person, but... It will always lead to this falsity that if I try to be good, then maybe God will see that I'm worthy and maybe he will fix my broken heart and soul. But Jesus says that model never works. There's a huge problem with that model. It won't work because you can never feel good enough. You can never do enough great things. Praying and trying your best, reading God's word, those are good things, but those things will not cause your heart to change. He's saying that you will never be filled with joy and love and peace and security apart from him, apart from an inside-out change because really doing all these good things leads really just to more anxiety, folks. Being religious, some of the most anxious, anxiety-ridden people I've ever met were people who were very religious because they never knew if they were living up to God's expectations. So when you, if you're like that and something happens to you in your life, you immediately go into this tailspin of doubt. You know, listen, I thought I was living a good enough life. God, why did you let this happen? And you see, my friend, Jesus is tenderly and he's strongly telling you that because he loves you, the outside in will never work. In fact, he says, uh, Jeremiah says in the Old Testament, although you wash yourself with soap, get this, although you wash yourself with soap and you use an abundance of cleansing powder, Jeremiah says, the stain of your guilt is ever before me, the sovereign Lord says. Here's the amazing news where the blessing of the inside out life is found. You notice we skipped over this parentheses in verse 19 of chapter 7. It's very easy for us to, to read over this, to miss this. 
But Mark makes this editorial comment to help us understand. Jesus doesn't just say here, what does he say in verse 17? He says, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus is not just saying, listen, guys, by the way, I want to just side note here, not really related to what I'm saying, all foods are clean. Okay, guys, thanks. Oh, wow, Jesus, well, that's great. Thanks for telling me that. You've just devastated me with this truth that I am a worm. (laughs) I am destined for hell. And you're telling me I can eat whatever I want to eat? Oh, great, thanks. Gee, that was real helpful. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is declaring, Jesus is pronouncing, literally, Mark says in the Greek, as of now, I make these foods clean. Here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, you get it right, Pharisees, that you're saying God is holy. Yes, you're correct. God is holy. But you're going about being holy in utterly the wrong way. All these Old Testament laws, yes, they are right. Should you be clean, ritually clean, ceremonially, and spiritually clean before the Lord? Yes, you are correct. But all of these cleanliness laws you missed their purpose. Their purpose was to show you, to move you to your need of spiritual perfection. These, these spiritual cleanliness laws were given to you, God's Old Testament laws were given to you to show you that there is a fire on your couch and you are going to be burned if you don't turn to Christ. So then Jesus declares in this statement, all foods are clean. Here's what he's saying. You don't have to follow these rules and these traditions because they have already been fulfilled. All foods are clean because I've made them clean. I have come to you and everything that you have fought with and tried to do, I have fulfilled. I have fulfilled these things. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Literally, that means God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the cross of Jesus, Mark, the reason his gospel is so short is because he is trying to give us this fast-paced story, uh, truth, that Jesus was running to the cross. Running, sprinting to the cross because he knew that the cross was ground zero for someone who's trying to live an outside-in life to come and be delivered from the outside-in and to be rescued from the inside out. The cross is ground zero for unclean people like me and like you. He became sin for me. I get his beauty and his cleanness and his righteousness and he gets my filthiness and my dirty diapers. I was changing my son Joel this week. God gives me the craziest illustrations sometimes. And we have five kids, and I've changed my share of diapers, not as many as my precious wife, Presley Ann. She's changed far more diapers than I have. But I've changed my share. And, you know, she's so efficient in changing diapers. She'll use five wipes. I use 50 wipes. (laughs) Never fails. And here I am changing my twins, Joel and Ellie, after nap time. And I got Ellie taken care of, and I'm trying to change Joel, and I'm in a hurry because it stinks. You know, and I'm trying my fastest. I'm pulling wipe after wipe. And the more I tried to wipe him, instead of getting the poop on the wipe, it was getting on my hand. And the more I tried to wipe it off my hand, I'd get it back onto him. It was just like this poop cycle going everywhere. I have a point in this, trust me. 
And it occurred to me that that's exactly what Jesus did for me. That he wiped all of the stuff onto himself. Joel was wiped clean after 25 wipes or so. And, you know, he was clean. You know, he had a shiny hiney. It was good. But I, I still had it on me, and I had to go and wash my hands, right? But I transferred a little bit of that onto me so that he could be clean. Wow, what a small sliver of a picture that Jesus took all of my junk, rebellion, lust, pride, arrogance, hatred, and my anger. I've been here for 43 years. That's a lot. And if he gives me another 43 years, there is going to be a lot more. He's taken all of your filth on himself, ground zero cross. He became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God, that you might begin to live an inside out I hope you've turned to him. If you haven't, you're sitting on a couch that's on fire, folks. And the fire will reach you someday. It's guaranteed. Jump off the couch and into his waiting arms. Trust him. He's a good father. He loves you. And his rescue plan of the inside out is precious. If you would have trust him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, this was a heavy section. But Lord, oh God, thank you that you didn't shy away from giving us hard-hitting stuff. Because sometimes we need to be hit with a freight train to wake us up to the reality that we are living life completely wrongly and for ourselves. So I pray in your tender mercies, Lord, would you shake us and wake us from the slumber of uh, ourselves and from the self-love And Lord, you would awaken our hearts to the truth that Lord, you love us and we need you and you're the only one who can clean us. So help us, Father. Help us to turn away from religion. Help us to turn away from the traditions of men and turn towards you, Jesus, who was turned inside out for us. Father, we love you. Help us now, Jesus. Let's stand and sing together.